So this morning we're in the final chapter of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, and we're just going to read that whole chapter just now. Chapter's titled Jonah's Anger and the Lord's Compassion. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? If you keep that passage there before you, you'll find that helpful. If, if you manage to get one of the A4 sheets when you came in, it's on there. Uh, you can follow along. Uh, last time we saw the amazing work of God amongst the people of Nineveh who repent and turn away from their sin. And there's an amazing reality that we don't have the time to go into this morning because it's really for, from last week. But the way in which actually Jonah is sent to a place in which he doesn't realize this, but there's a whole bunch of sort of history that has happened that means that he thinks in his head, you know, the Ninevites, I'm the last person that they're going to listen to. You know, I can go there and say your word, God, but they're not going to listen to what I have to say. But as it turns out, actually, history tells us that Jonah maybe just maybe turned up at a point in time in a serious history where actually uh, numerous calamities had happened in the years intervening. So that when Jonah says, you know what, if you don't repent, God is going to destroy the city, they're ready to say, oh, right, maybe that's what this has all been about. <laughs> There's stories of famines and earthquakes and disasters that have come upon them that Jonah's none the wiser of and comes into and God does amazing work amongst them. But Jonah's a story of contrasts. Contrast between a good God and a rebellious prophet in Jonah. We see that Jonah runs, but God pursues. That Jonah prays and God saves. That Jonah preaches and God forgives. And now lastly, we see Jonah's anger and God's compassion. So I want to show you four simple things just in these few verses. Firstly, Jonah's heart. 
Jonah's sulk, God's heart, and then Jonah's redemption. Firstly, if you turn to those first four verses, we'll think about Jonah's heart. I wonder how you feel when a rival does well. We'd like to pretend we don't have those. We don't have people that we sort of are a little bit adversarial with. But I think that we do, don't we? Here's a picture of uh, Lionel Messi collecting the Ballon d'Or, the award for the best footballer in the world that year, if you're not sort of au fait with football. And here is his rival, Cristiano Ronaldo, listening to his speech. Uh, Not quite so impressed, not quite so happy at his success. Here in this story we see something of Jonah's heart spill out as he sees his rival do well. And he's not happy about it. In fact, he's angry. Verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. It displeased Jonah Exceedingly. In fact, you might have a footnote there in your translation if you're reading it sort of on your device or on a sort of full Bible rather than the sheet that will say that it could be translated, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. It was exceedingly wicked to Jonah. And he was greatly angry, in fact, the Hebrew tells us. So what was it that caused this level of reaction? That Jonah would say in his heart to himself that God had behaved exceedingly evilly. Well, like chapters 1 to 2, chapter 4 here begins immediately from the end of chapter 3. Chapter 3 ended this way. When God saw what they did, that is Nineveh repenting, turning from their sin, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. It was exceedingly wicked and evil to Jonah that God had not destroyed Nineveh, and he was greatly angry. Jonah believes God is evil for not destroying the Ninevites from their evil, which they have now turned away from. And so Jonah is maybe the only preacher that I'm aware of who is upset because people were listening. He's upset because people did respond. I don't know any preacher who has that problem. In all the conversations I have with different guys in different settings, I I can tell you, especially on a Monday morning, you you know, the conversation is not, do you know, Dom, I, I just find that people listen to me too much. You know, people are just too responsive. You know, I say things and people do them. Jonah is angry that the people listened to the message and responded. So it tells us, he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? Now think just for a second there. Back at the beginning when God's word first came to Jonah, Jonah goes to Nineveh. And there's an obvious no, because he gets up and he flees and he goes to Tarshish. But this tells us, There was more than just a no. Isn't this what I told you when I was yet in my country? It wasn't just a simple no. There was more to it. And Jonah's anger here uh, doesn't come from surprise. 
It's not an outcome that surprised him and now he's angry. But he had suspected all along that God would do this. And so he's angry. God has something of a reputation. See, Jonah's right to say that he knew that God would do this. He knew that God had this reputation as gracious, merciful, slow to anger, loving, relenting. This has been seen since the very beginning of time and with everyone. When Adam and Eve sinned, they've been told, on the day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. Did they? No. In fact, God goes to lengths to protect them, to clothe them. Animals' blood is spilt in order to save their blood being spilt. And a rescue package is promised. One who would crush the head of the serpent and end the curse that had come upon them for their sin. And because of this reputation, he says, that is why I made haste to flee Tarshish, to Tarshish. Because he didn't want Nineveh to be saved from destruction. He didn't want them to be saved. And now they are. See, Jonah's refusal to follow God's call was because he didn't want the Ninevites spared of God's wrath. Tells us, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, when he prayed from the belly of the great fish, salvation belongs to the Lord. Some of those great sort of tropes that he throws out, great words that he knows are right to say, he didn't believe it. He didn't believe salvation belongs to the Lord. He believed that salvation belongs to the Lord only when it's to Jonah's people or to Jonah himself. That's the only time he really believes that salvation belongs to God, not when it goes to people he doesn't care for. I know that you are gracious God, he tells us, and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It's love that doesn't give up even when it's difficult, even when it'd be easier to give up and relenting from disaster. See, Jonah's redemption didn't come in chapter 2. Otherwise, this is a really weird twist, isn't it? Where it feels that all of a sudden he's back out of character again and back to his old ways. Look at this reaction, verse 3. Please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And you know what? That tells us this was very likely his intention in the boat too. Take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And listen to God's response. It's the first time we've heard him, other than him twice telling Jonah, go to Nineveh, tell him what I told you. Do you do well to be angry? And in fact, actually, I think it'd be better translated again if if you're reading there on a uh, Bible on your device or, or in a book form. It might well tell you in the footnotes there that it could be translated, is it right? Do you do the right thing? To be angry. Is your anger right? Have you considered, Jonah, you might be wrong? Have you considered, Jonah, that secondly, 
Is this doing you any good? It's a pretty self-destructive kind of anger, isn't it? It's really only serving to destroy himself. Now, I've used it uh, before, but there's a great few lines in a Sam Fender song called 17 Going Under. He says, that's the thing with anger. It begs to stick around so it can fleece you of your beauty and leave you spent with nought to offer. It makes you hurt the ones you love. Jonah has a very self-destructive form of anger here. Why? Let me give you my drugstore sort of psychology he's not in control and if it can't be his way he'd rather die he wants to break it down further to be God because he thinks though he'd never say it in such a crass or blunt way but he thinks he'd be a better God than God If he's not in control doing things his way, then things must be out of control and things must not be going well. Here we see Jonah's heart and motivation. Everything is upside down with him. All the values are sort of flipped. Everything is self-focused. It's all about him. And yet, everything's strangely relatable. There's Jonah's heart. And then secondly, we see Jonah's sulk. After God's pointed question here, do you do well, do you do right to be angry? We see Jonah off in a sulk again. Jonah went out of the city. That didn't take long, did it? Didn't want to be there in the first place. Didn't take him long to get out of there. He's uh, like that child who's sort of the first one out of school every day. Sadly, that's, that's never really my children. It was never really me. Not because I wanted to stay there, but I was just slow getting ready. But you know, there's always that one with sort of 10 minutes left who's sort of already got the pencil case packed. Uh, The books are sort of going away. Uh, The desk is, you know, oddly tidy. The jacket is sort of starting to surreptitiously go on. And I can just see Jonah now checking his watch, putting the jacket back on, desperate to get out, even before he's finished his little sermon. And although I'm sure, as Hugh said to us last week, that he said more than just, yet this time and Nineveh be destroyed, I don't think he said much more. I don't think there was much more to that message. Because I don't think he wanted to be there any longer than he had to be. And at the first opportunity, Jonah went out of the city. And he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. He wants to get a front row seat. Just take that in for a moment. Jonah wants to be able to watch as the city goes up in smoke. That's where he's at. A great scene in the film The Dark Knight where Alfred is talking to Bruce Wayne and Bruce Wayne is struggling to understand the motivation of the Joker. He can't really get him. So he tells a story of an experience in Burma and he lands up with this great line. He says, some men aren't looking for anything logical like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned or negotiated with. Some men 
just want to watch the world burn. And as you hear that, and you read that, and you see Jonah here, that sounds like hyperbole. That sounds like, I don't know, I don't really think that people are like that. But people are. Uh, we lived in a flat uh, around about uh, 11 years ago or so now uh, that we nicknamed the bunker. Uh, it was an absolute dive, um, as are most of the places we've lived um, in our lives. Uh, there was no natural light in it. Uh, it had school ceilings, you know, with the square pads. It had this sort of strip lights uh, sort of on there, so there was no sort of mood lighting. It was just full on on or pitch black because uh, there's no natural light. Um, the living room had the bathroom and the toilet attached to it. Uh, and in fact, the toilet was right next to the TV. Uh, so it's the most embarrassing thing in the world for friends coming over. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, it, we were next door to a fish and chip shop, so we, we permanently smelt and felt like chip fat. Uh, which, you know, when you get that as a treat for dinner one time, that's okay. But like as your permanent sort of musk, uh, it's, it's not that nice. Uh, so anyway, here's where we're living. And the worst design flaw about it is it had industrial fire alarms that we couldn't access. Uh, so one day we set the fire alarms off cooking and we can't get to the panel so we can't do anything. So we have to call the fire brigades to come and like turn the alarms off. And they can't get in. We feel a little bit better because it's not our fault because we can't even get to it to do anything but anyway they end up having to climb in through the window into next doors and down and get to all of it and it's all a big scene but they don't know what's going on so there's a whole truck there and all this crew and it's a bit sort of dramatic and we live opposite a Chinese takeaway as well that was a bit better than the fish and chip shop I frequented there more often um, and there's a guy who's come out of there and he's looking in and the doors open the crew's there coming in and everything like this and as far as you would know, there could have been something very serious happening. He stood there in the middle of the road watching and starts to open his takeaway and eat as he looks in. And we catch sort of eyes. And I'm a bit busy talking to firefighters as well. You know when you're in that sort of tense moment you see something like that and it just kind of takes you off guard and I'm like, what are you doing? Some people like to have a front row seat for calamity and that is Jonah the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah to save him from his discomfort notice the words there again he's appointed a plant it's the same word about the fish he's appointed he's prepared a plant for him Jonah in his sulk actually has done something really dumb and he's out there in the midst of the heat in the middle of the day and actually maybe somewhat inadvertently is now going to be in serious trouble. And yet God appoints a plant to save him from his discomfort. In Jonah's sulk, he's not really set himself up to succeed. And yet God graciously covers him. He covers him from his discomfort. And interestingly, the word there, again, can be translated evil. And I think it is supposed to be translated evil because it's a play on words. Jonah's accused God of being evil for him relenting from destroying. And Jonah in his sulk has brought evil discomfort upon himself. 
Disobeying God has not paid off for him at all. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And again, there's a play on words. He was exceedingly angry, verse 1. And he's exceedingly glad, verse 6. Exceedingly angry because of God's grace towards people he didn't think God should be gracious to. And now exceedingly glad because of a plant saving him from his own foolishness. Jonah's emotional reactions are completely disproportionate and disconnected from reality. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. It is all so over the top. And yet, I know, you and I never do that, do we? We never overreact like that. We never throw our toys out of the pram when things don't quite go our way, do we? Do you do well? Do you do right, God asks, to be angry for the plant? Yes, I do well. Yes, I do right, he says, to be angry. Angry enough to die. God is giving Jonah the chance to reconsider his actions here. But in his sulk, he can't even begin to imagine that he could be wrong. He might not be right to be so angry. We see Jonah's heart, we see his sulk, and then we see God's heart in these last two verses. See, we've heard much from Jonah and his motivation. Now we hear from God and his motivations in his actions. You pity the plant, he tells Jonah, for which you didn't labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. You've got so worked up about a plant which you did nothing for. And you had next to no time with. You've overreacted, Jonah. The plant produces such emotions he wants to die. But you have no emotions about the destruction and death of Nineveh. Should I not pity Nineveh, God says. See, God doesn't set out to destroy Sometimes he does, sometimes he has to, to uphold love and justice. He has no choice. But he doesn't want that. That's not his desire. Jonah has benefited from God pitying him. He's been pulled up from the pit, from the very presence of death around him. Why can't others expect the same mercy from God, Jonah? Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? If so, then it is at that time at least in the world, as far as we know from history, a mega city. It's an equivalent of a New York, a London, um, wherever else you want to sort of name with millions upon millions of people. 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left. 
And you see, it's not just about God's nature, that should I not pity Nineveh, because that's what I'm like, but it's also about the nature of the city. This is a great city. This is a lot of people, Jonah. But even more, and also much cattle. God cares for the whole ecosystem around it. Where Jonah can't see past his offense, at things not done towards him, but actually done towards God, God can't see past the value of 120,000 people whom he made, whom he wants to be saved. We see Jonah's heart, Jonah's sulk, and then God's heart. But the most important thing of this whole book is about Jonah's redemption. See, this story shouldn't actually end on a sour note, because it is a redemption story arc, and that's how Jonah should be read. Another great quote in the film, The Dark Knight. A lot of my references are sort of narrowed in on a very niche uh, uh, sort of short list. We said this, these prophetic sort of stories usually present the prophet as a hero. But Jonah doesn't really feel like that as a book. There's a great moment with Harvey Dent, this sort of lawyer um, in the film. He says, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Sadly, he becomes the fulfillment of that prophecy. He becomes the villain Two-Face. And so we're wondering whether there's any hope for Jonah here. Will he change? It may seem strange because the narrator sort of leaves us on what seems like a sour note for Jonah. It feels a bit flat, like Jonah hasn't really come that far and not really learned that much. Maybe it looked like in chapter 2, this was Jonah's redemption. And then in chapter 4, It's jarring because it sort of seems like it wasn't really the moment that Jonah had got God. So when does Jonah turn around? Well, he obviously turns around in Jonah chapter 5. But that was never written for us. Sadly, we don't know when, we don't know how, because it wasn't written for us. Why not? Because that would be fascinating, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be the bit that you'd really want to see? The moment that he finally puts it all together? It's a great final scene, the film The Usual Suspects, where the detective finally understands that he's been played, that Kaiser Soze, the great master villain, has actually been before him all along, but he couldn't see it, spinning him a tail, and he suddenly realises as he looks up to his notice board, everything that he said has come from everything in the room. He drops his cup and tries to go out but can't catch up with him. At some point, Jonah had that moment where suddenly he put everything together. And yet the author doesn't show us that. It's like that's not the bit they want to show us. Which is weird, because that's the bit that we would want to see, isn't it? But that comes back to this question of who the author is. Remember, we said sort of right at the beginning, we would come back to think about that. And we'd say that, you know, it's hard for the commentators at times, because they say it's hard to put together, you know, this is a message that's so negative about Jonah, seemingly, in so many ways. So surely it couldn't be Jonah who would write this. And we don't know for sure who the author is. The book doesn't tell us who it is. But the depth of detail in the story and the level of embarrassing honesty 
makes it clear to me that if this wasn't Jonah writing it himself, this was someone who Jonah had relayed the story to in great detail. If it wasn't Jonah himself, this was someone who knew Jonah. This was someone who was relaying the story as it happened, just as we see in the Gospels. You would never write it that way, that the apostles would be so cowardly and unbelieving for so long, unless that was just who they were. And that's important, because Jonah relays the story as though he's the bad guy, because he now sees at the point of writing or relaying the story, he was wrong all along. There's this wonderful humility that Jonah has that he doesn't include the moment he repented and doesn't give himself the redemptive story. He doesn't give himself the hero's ending. Jonah tells his story in all its embarrassing honesty because that was how it happened, just like the apostles with the Gospels. He wants us to learn quicker than he had to as he learned it the hard way. Why do we need to learn the lessons of Jonah? Why do we need to hear his story? Because Jesus sends us. We are all called by Christ to be his missionaries, to be his witnesses in the world. It's a gospel identity of being a Christian, not a vocation for a specific class of people, to be on mission. John chapter 20, verse 21, he appears in the room to the disciples just before Pentecost. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. And his great commission, Matthew chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We are called to be missionaries too. See, it's tempting to think that being on mission is all about what you'll do for others. Only to realise it's just as much about what God will do in you. The relief of Jonah's story is that God's purposes aren't thwarted by shoddy workers. In fact, his power is made all the greater in weakness. So, I actually really, really like Jonah. It may seem like I've been very critical of him. I don't think so. I think I was just being honest about who he was. He's not presented as a hero. He doesn't believe he was a hero at this point. Far from disliking him, I like him very much. I like the Jonah that writes this book, if not the one who did some of the things he did. I like him because he's me, because he's all of us. I like the story too, because this is a story about God's grace. It's a story where Jonah is saying, look how much of a tool I was, but look at what God did. And there's hope for every disciple on mission that God would do the same in and through us. That as bad as Jonah had messed up, he got it right in the end with this humble, honest, vulnerable telling of his story. A couple of weeks ago, I 
reference the Taylor Swift song, Antihero, I'll remind you sort of of it again. Uh, it's a fantastic, sort of candid sort of admission of sort of realising um, a few difficult things about yourself, I suppose. I have this thing where I get older, but I just, but just never wiser. Midnights become my afternoons. When my depression works, the graveyard shift, all of the people I've ghosted stand there in the room. I should not be left to my own devices. They come with prices and vices. I end up in crisis. I wake up screaming from dreaming. One day I'll watch as you're leaving because you got tired of my scheming. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. We said in chapter two that this is exactly the kind of revelation that Jonah needed, but hadn't had. He hadn't got that yet. Jonah, in writing the book, has now had this revelation. He's the anti-hero. He's the problem. But just as importantly, he does not have to fear God's rejection. His story, in fact, highlights all the more God's grace. And it's just as real for you and for me. So lastly then, as we finish, four takeaways sort of from this book. Number one, God alone is the one who has power to save us from Satan's sin and death, even our own self-destructive behavior. Number two, nobody is beyond the loving grace and saving reach of God, whether a religious rebel or a pagan rebel. Nobody is beyond God's loving grace and saving reach. Thirdly, God has always, in his sovereign, loving care, already prepared for us the salvation that we cry out for in disaster. Here, Jonah brings disaster after disaster upon himself, and every time, God had prepared salvation for him, even though he'd been a bit of a tool. And then fourthly, Whilst God works out his plans to deliver a whole city, and here is a record of an amazing revival, he is also working out his plans to deliver one rebellious prophet. And as much as he is concerned with all nations and all people, he's just as concerned with you in the moment you are in too. God is the one who has power to save us from all. Nobody's beyond his loving grace and saving reach. God is always in his sovereign loving care already prepared salvation for you. And whilst God works out his plans to deliver cities and nations, he's also working out his plans to deliver you where you are. Let's pray and then we will sing a closing song together.